Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks, and you're tuning in for a special episode today. We're recording here in front of a live audience in sunny, hot Oakland, California. Hello, audience. Awesome. And we're joined today in front of this audience by a really special panel of guests uh, with one thing in common. They are all featured or worked on or or wrote uh, East Bay Cooks, this new cookbook that explores the diverse and compelling restaurant scene in the East Bay, this area east of the San Francisco Bay. Now, there's a lot to discuss about what dining in the East Bay means, how it's evolved over the years, about these chefs and authors' work. So we want to jump right in and meet our guests. And let's start at the far end of the table from me. Uh, he's the head chef of Pizza Antica, the local eatery that now boasts four locations, two of which are here in the East Bay. He's a Bay Area native, actually, who grew up in the kitchen. And I learned this, actually even cooked for his high school football team while he was an offensive lineman, which is awesome. It's Angelo Smith. Awesome. And next to him, you might recognize this Brooklyn native from a number of TV appearances, including a run on Top Chef. One of the youngest graduates of the Culinary Institute of America, she's worked at San Francisco's Jardinere and at the Revered River Cafe London with Ruth Rogers and Rose Gray. Five years ago, she opened Shakewell, the Spanish Mediterranean restaurant just off Oakland's Lake Merritt. It's delicious. I love to eat there. And it's Jen Beastie. All right. And next to Jen, you might know her from her time leading the kitchen at the Drip Line, the West Oakland Cafe that drew high praise for her inventive cooking that melded her Singapore roots with California cuisine. Now, she was drawn to food while working in Italy and recently took over the menu at San Francisco's local kitchen and I think has plans for an Oakland spot of her own in the works still, right? It's Nora Heron. All right, and last but certainly not least, right next to me here, she's the James Beard-winning food writer and author of San Francisco Chef's Table, and she was the senior food writer at the San Jose Mercury News for more than a decade. She launched the blog foodgal.com and, of course, is the author of the cookbook that's bringing us all together today, East Bay Cooks. It's Carolyn Jung. All right. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thanks for having us. Of course. Um, Carolyn, let's start with you. So we're here to talk about your book, East Bay Cooks. And I want to start, we have a, a, an audience all over the country, all over the world. So maybe let's start before we dive in by sort of defining what the East Bay is for our global listeners. And you have so many wonderful adjectives that you use in the introduction to your book. Um, but tell us a little bit about what the East Bay is. Um, I guess some might even say that these days it is the happening spot in the Bay Area, uh -huh. in short. Um, it is also the most populous region in the Bay Area. And a lot of people think of it as just the cosmopolitan cities of Oakland and Berkeley. But it encompasses so much more, wine country in Livermore, um, the Tony suburbs of Danville, Pleasanton. So it's a huge mix of both um, 
very busy, um, very um, pioneering areas. I mean, it was Berkeley, of course, is the birthplace of the free speech movement. Right. Oakland, probably the most diverse city in the entire country. Yeah. Um, and you have Alameda, which, you know, was home for many, many years as a naval base and now is filled with all these incredible distilleries and breweries and gastropubs. So it's a really rich area in so many ways. Yeah, absolutely. I want to open it up to the three chefs we have here too to tell us what makes the East Bay so unique or so special. And and maybe this is from a culinary perspective or maybe just in general. What, when we say East Bay, comes to mind for you? I think for me, uh, people here are more receptive of uh, the different types of cuisine that we have to offer. Um, especially when I was at Dripline, um, it was... It wasn't hard. People want, people were adventurous. And, you know, if you remember where Dripline was, it was way out. Parking was hard. Uh-huh. It was hard to get to, but it became a destination because people were looking for this type of cuisine that was, you know, because of the demographic change recently, um, over the years, uh, people are receptive. People are well traveled. They're more cultured, you know, compared to San Francisco where I am now. It's a, it's a little different. I'm feeling that because I've been at both ends. Yeah. So you found, you find the East Bay to be very welcoming as a chef. Absolutely. Yeah. Others, what makes the East Bay special, unique? I, I worked in San Francisco for almost 20 years, uh-huh. 17 years, something like that. And, and then I moved out to Oakland about five, five and a half, six years ago. And uh, the thing that I notice most about the restaurants is I think there's a lot more chef driven, uh, chef owned or family owned or couple owned restaurants. And I think that you see less of that in San Francisco. And, um, and I think that is what gives a lot more of the East Bay restaurants, not Oakland, not just Oakland, East Bay restaurants, uh, a lot more soul. And there's a lot more um, effort and love put into the restaurants because of that. And then a lot of the the more um, ethnic restaurants in Oakland are more authentic, in my opinion. And for that same reason. And I think that's what a big thing for me about, I've, I discovered when I came to Oakland and actually started eating here. Because when I lived in San Francisco, I never came here. Yeah. And then when I moved here, I was like, this place is amazing is and it? I love it. And people are so friendly and the restaurants have that more, have more love to them. They have more passion and more, a little more soul because of who's running them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you talk about this concept of soul and I think we look at San Francisco, which has long been a dining destination and particularly, you know, after the tech boom, we've now seen Michelin in San Francisco. We have, I think still just one Michelin restaurant in the East Bay, James Siabutz, who's a friend of Salt and Spine. Um, but there's sort of that distinction between this place in San Francisco, which I think is really easy for someone to go out to a three Michelin star meal on a Tuesday night, and that's a thing. And it's a little different, sort of, the dining and restaurant culture in the East Bay. Yeah. Angelo, you grew up in the Bay Area, right? I did, yeah. I grew, grew up, like, 38 miles north, Benicia. Okay. So, um I just love how like diverse the Bay Area is, especially the East Bay. You know, from street fairs to the schools. You know, uh-huh. you said high school football. You know, you yeah. play all kinds of walks of life, and uh, it's what makes the Bay Area so special. It's just the diversity of food, the, everything. It's you see all walks of life here, and it's keep you on your toes at all times. Sure. 
obviously when we talk about the East Bay and dining in the East Bay, I think we have to talk about Alice Waters. So you mentioned Alice Waters and the beginning of East Bay Cooks. Um, but I mean, we're coming up on 50 years now since she opened Chez Panisse in Berkeley. And really, I think, um, Carolyn, you wrote in the intro, ignited a food revolution that not only defined the ethos of California cuisine, but set in motion a sea change in the way we eat shop for ingredients, and farm our lands really across the country. So I'm curious sort of what role you all think the East Bay has played in shaping the way that we eat and the way we think about food as a country, both historically and like how it's doing that today. Well, I think Alice was the rock that was thrown into the river. And from that, all these ripples emerged okay. um, throughout not just the entire Bay Area, but the country. Um she came around at a time when we had iceberg lettuce and that was it in the grocery <laughs> stores and, you know, no one had heard of, um, Rasal Hanu and all these other spices. Um, and she made us aware that this was, there was this whole other world out there and there were all these other ingredients that we ought to know and more so that we ought to care where they come from, how they're raised, how they're slaughtered, how they make their way from the farm to our tables. Sure. And she has raised a generation of chefs, you know, some of them in this book too, who have gone out on their own now and they are practicing not only what she brought forth, but putting their own spin on it too. Yeah. Do you all consider the East Bay like the birthplace of modern American dining? Like has it really been that impactful? sort of the things that have taken place in this part of the country? Um, well, to what Carolyn just said, I feel like <clears throat> I was one of those ripples because I was working in Manhattan and just out of culinary school and all the produce and specialty stuff that we were getting in the fine dining restaurants in New York was coming from here, from uh -huh. the Central Valley. Uh -huh. And, you know, Alice was coming out with books and Chez Panisse was having this whole revolution and that's why I moved here. I mean, I moved here because there was all these female chefs, Trisha DeJardin and Elka Gilmore and Nancy Oakes, and there was Alice, and and it was just like, this was the, for me, it was like, I left Manhattan to come here because the food scene here was so cool in yeah. the 90s, you know, and that, right. that's, that just shows that her what her impact was. Right. Nora, you grew up around food as well, right? Yeah. Your mom was a caterer? Mm-hmm. Um, and you weren't originally planning to pursue a career in food, right? You were pursuing a career in fashion? What drew you to food, and, and then what drew you to the East Bay? Um, right, so I went to school uh, to be a designer. I was, in, I was a shoe designer. This is okay. when everybody looks at my shoes. <laughs> right? I know. Well, that was my past life. Um, so uh, my mom was a caterer, so I worked a lot for mom. It was free labor. It was, um, you know, prepping all day. Uh -huh. She was like, you're not going to go into this industry. Okay. You're going to go to school and be and do something other than cook. Okay. Um, I did that. I where, where I studied um, engineering and ended up engineering shoes because that's what I loved. And uh, went to um, Firenze, Italy, mm -hmm. and was exposed to food while I was there. And really, it was that time when I learned how to respect food and where food came from. Uh, coming back to the U.S., uh, so my life was San Francisco, Las Vegas, New York, Chicago, you know, the fashion world. It was crazy. Right. And I settled in um, Oakland. 
And um, when I figured, okay, I know all about, I, I, I've done cooking, I've trained with my mom, I've learned a lot in Italy. I wanted to learn how to bake, so I went to San Francisco Baking Institute. And then I, there's something about coming back to this ripple effect. I wanted to come back to cooking food that I grew up eating, what my mom taught me. But I wanted to use ingredients that were familiar to us. And so the whole idea of Dripline, local, and now Bijan has always been uh, Southeast Asian flavors, but with Californian sensibilities. Because uh-huh. I wanted to drive home, uh, you know, what we, what we grew up eating, but also using what's available to us. Yeah. There's a thread between the three of you. You all spent time in Italy training, right? All of you spent some time cooking in Italy. Um, what sort of lessons did you learn about food from Italy that you've brought back to your work now in the U.S.? I think similar to cooking at home, it's respect, uh-huh. uh, respect for the food, um, you know, from seat to table. Yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't work in Italy, but I, oh, you didn't. I okay. traveled a bunch in Italy and I ate, Got it. Okay. ate a lot. In okay. Italy. Yeah. Sorry. Um, no, it's okay. Uh, I wish I did. Um, <laughs> I, but the restaurant I worked for in London, um, was, uh, had a restaurant, was a very, is luxurious restaurant, I call it because they didn't care about food cost. And it was owned by these two very affluent women um, in in London, and they this brought, is River Cafe. Yeah, okay. yeah, Rose and Ruthie. Yeah. So they um they didn't care. They 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 were like the Chapinis of London. They didn't care any, about the cost of anything. They didn't right. Like family meal was like whatever was left over. Mm-hmm. So we right. ate really well, but but <laughs> they brought in tremendous amounts of food from Italy, artichokes, lemons, and and it was it was great. And then the seafood from that area. In, in London was amazing. So, um, so I had, it had that authentic, like Italian Chapinese style food. Sure. Um, but so I was cooking food from, from Northern Italy, but it was in London, but we traveled, I traveled there a lot and okay. ate. Um, so, so to answer your question, the, I forgot what it was, so I can't, I can't answer well, the question. <laughs> well, I got, I got my I research wanted, wrong I, I anyway. Wanted, I never worked in Italy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you for correcting yeah. me on that. Um, one, one thing we talk a lot about is this like, concept of like California cuisine and people sort of talk about the, use the term California cuisine. I'm curious if you all think there is such a thing as like a California cuisine. Um, and if so, like how would you define that? Or, or is it really just like there's too much diversity of what takes place in the East Bay and the broader Bay Area and all of California to like use a term like California cuisine to try and capture that. I think the California cuisine, like in the in the nineties, had a different definition than it does now. Sure, and, okay. but I think you can when, almost when you say California cuisine, you're referring to the cuisine of California in the nineties. Like right. I think that was such a huge thing that it actually it kind of has its own era. It does, but it doesn't really encapsulate what's taking place in the state or this area today. Yeah. We'll be right back with the second part of our live show with Carolyn Jung, author of East Bay Cooks, and chefs Nora Heron, Jen Beastie, and Angelo Smith. But first, we're catching up again this week with Sierra Tishgart, co-founder of the home cookware startup Great Jones, to explore some of our favorite and unique vintage cookbooks from the Great Jones Library. And here's the really fun part. Whenever Sierra and the Great Jones team join us to talk about a classic cookbook, hearing about it on Salt and Spine is just one part of the fun. If you head over to the Great Jones Instagram page today, you'll have the chance to leaf through this book with us, taking a sneak peek inside the pages of this classic volume. So let's bring in Sierra to talk about this week's book. Hi, Sierra. How are you? 
Hi, good. How are you doing? Good. I'm so glad to connect with you again to talk about another cookbook from the Great Jones Library. And today, I think you've pulled down Edna Lewis's The Taste of Country Cooking. Is that right? Yes, from 1977. Awesome. And I, I must say that, you know, we've had over 50 guests now on Salt and Spine, over 50 amazing cookbook authors. And Edna Lewis and her cookbooks are probably, if not the most, one of the most cited books and authors just in terms of influence on, you know, modern cookbook authors today. So I'm really excited to talk about this book with you. Yeah, the book is really intensely American. And I think defines what we think of when we talk about American cuisine and dishes. Um, She really values ingredients straight from the land. She also really interestingly dedicated this book to the people of Freetown. The name Freetown was adopted because the first residents had all been freed from slavery. And Mm -hmm. she discusses that in the book. And I think what Edna does so beautifully and why she, her legacy is so admired is that she combines these recipes that even today hold up in their relevance um, and are so universally appealing and delicious with really interesting historical context. Yeah, I mean, she was groundbreaking in so many ways. I mean, you you noted Freetown. She also was, she owned a restaurant in Manhattan in the 40s um, and and was the chef. And as a, a Black woman, it was sort of an anomaly at the time to be leading a restaurant in Manhattan. But she really had such an impact with her cookbook. And she wrote several of them. And I'm wondering, you say it's intensely American. I'm wondering if you can dive into that a little bit more for us. What do you mean when you say that? Yeah, I think one, the way that she talks about sourcing ingredients. Mm -hmm. And I think the way that often the ingredients are, you know, I, I see something around to me that's often defined by like, letting the ingredients shine for themselves and, and one looking locally, but also like I'm looking in a recipe right now for like fried tomatoes. Um, that is sure. really just, you know, going off the like freshness and beauty of these tomatoes. She writes about peach cobbler and making ice cream with her mom in like a hot summer afternoon. That's just so like quintessentially and beautifully American to me. Yeah, it's so interesting you talk about cooking locally and and going back to the produce and and we look at some of these older cookbooks, this being one example, but certainly all of Edna Lewis's work, I think. And we've sort of gone through this mm-hmm. evolution of moving away and then now like a while ago, you know, this intense rush back to local ingredients, to working from produce that's available to us from farmers or farming our own. Yeah, I mean, I it's it's a little hard to contextualize the time. I would I would be interested to go back and look at more 1970s cookbooks, but yeah. the way that she isolates that's by season, I mean, just seems, you know, there's a chapter for fall, there's a chapter for spring and summer, like just that classification, I would think for that time period is actually quite ahead of the time. And we saw a couple of years ago, her one of her other books, In Pursuit of Flavor, was actually uh, republished for its 30th year anniversary, 30 years after it was originally published. And I thought that was just so um, wonderful to see her book being reissued in that way and celebrated. And I think it actually did quite well in its reissuing, um, if I recall yeah. anecdotally. So um, I love that her legacy is sort of still ever present in the cookbook industry and sort of it seems here to stay. Oh, definitely. I mean, these, even she writes a late spring dinner, skillet spring chicken with watercress, buttered Jerusalem artichokes, rhubarb pie. Like, you know, I think this is just classic. And really also her recipes also just work and are loved, you know, um, on their own. 
Yeah, absolutely. She is an icon for sure. And I'm so glad you pulled that book down so we could talk about it today. Yes, me, me too. Me Thanks. too. It's also, dedi- she dedicates it to Judith Jones, which, you know, is our where we got the great Jones namesake. So that's right. extra nice. Exactly. Cookbook uh, publisher, editor, Judith Jones. Uh, well, thank you so much, Sierra. This was so great. Thank you. Thank you. And now we're back for part two of our live event with some of the voices behind the new book, East Bay Cooks. We're a show on cookbooks, obviously, so I want to talk about cookbooks for a little bit. Uh, can you each maybe give me, all four of you, uh, a cookbook or a cookbook author maybe that has been important to you or influential to you in the course of your career, like a book that you had early on or a book that's really meaningful to you or one that you really relied on or particular, or even just authors? It doesn't have to be a, an actual specific book. Uh, right now, I have two little ones at home, and I uh, both of them like to look at this Reader's Digest cookbook that I got in um, 1995 from my grandfather. Okay. And uh, it's just for kids cooking, and I've made literally every recipe from cover to cover in that book. So I have a five-year-old right now, and he's totally into cooking and likes to play around with it. So that particular book, um, I think it's Cooking for Kids, um, just made it the other day with my son. It was just a grilled cheese sandwich. But, or peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but it's a play. It's like cream cheese, jelly, and then you dip it in French toast batter and you cook it. Sure. <laughs> that book, to me personally, you know, I was pretty young when I got that book from my grandfather. He always pushed me to cook, 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 cook and kept me on track. Okay. Yeah. Others, works or authors that have been influential to you? Um, uh, Marcella Hazan, um, and, um, Richard Only, yeah, the uh, Lulu Provencal cookbook that was like a, a big that all those kind of books around there were Richard Only. Um, and then out of late, I've been so in love with all the uh, Moro cookbooks and uh, and the Autolonghi guys are just right. uh, I love all that. That's been the latest stuff, but that one of the older stuff I was reading was Japanese and Richard Only and sure, Amazon, yeah, Nora. Mine has to be uh, by Asma Lightly. Um, she's an Asian um, Singaporean yeah. author. Um, my mom had gifted me her book uh, when I moved out here because it was, you know, food that she would cook, and it was something I wanted to always have and remind me of home. Um, I Asma Lightly passed away this year in February 2019, and I remember my last conversation with her. When I was in Singapore, we had dinner, and I wanted to do a collaboration where I would sort of modernize her home, her, her, the recipes in her book uh-huh. into my version, but that never came to fruition because she passed. So no. I would always, I want to do something, maybe with her family. Yeah, that's really meaningful. Carolyn, is there a work? Well, that's a hard one, but I, the first person that comes to mind would be um, Michael Rollman. Who um, was good friends with Anthony Bourdain? He's good friends with Michael Simon. He's a writer um, who was based in Cleveland and now New York. Um, but he wrote books like Soul of a Chef, mm-hmm. which um, he's just such a wonderful, um, rhythmic writer. And you just get lost in his prose. And because he um, knows how to cook well himself, He's able to, um, you know, get into actually, yeah, the mind and the soul of the chefs that he profiles. Yeah. And, um, I remember, you know, vividly his description of, uh, Thomas Keller and the first time 
Thomas um, told himself that he was going to kill a rabbit because he was serving rabbit and he felt that to give the most respect you could to the rabbit that he would need to experience what it would be like to take its life and just bring to life that whole experience and you know Thomas kind of botched it on the first try and how I mean he was just crushed um, emotionally because he he didn't want the rabbit to suffer and how when the rabbit finally gave up its life he made sure that he was going to do the very best that he could um, to cook it um, and show that the animal didn't die in vain and that um, he would show that he would give it life in a different way. And it was just, it was a very powerful image and it still sticks with me. Yeah. We were talking a little bit about this idea of California cuisine. When you're putting together a book like this, Carolyn, like East Bay Cooks, how did you approach choosing which chefs and restaurants to include, and then, of course, working with chefs, many of whom are here, in determining which... I think each chef has one, two recipes on average in the book. That's sort of a really small taste of a chef's work or a restaurant's menu. How did you sort of decide what was going to go into a book, you know, where that really can't encapsulate everything that's happening in the East Bay? Well, um... Figure One, who's the publisher of this book, they're based out of Canada, and they've done this type of regional cookbook throughout Canada with great success, and a couple years ago, they decided to venture into the U.S. to do the same, and so they did Portland Cooks, and they did Seattle Cooks, and then mine was the third in this series, which is East Bay Cooks, and so the format was already um, laid out for me. It was at least 40 chefs or restaurants, and then two recipes apiece, and they could be anything from cocktails to desserts to soups to entrees. And so when I went to start working on the book and trying to get a group of chefs together for this, I mean, the overriding um, idea in my head was that the East Bay is so diverse. I really wanted to get a wide variety of cuisines in there to really reflect the area and to show just, um, you know, the diversity of Singaporean cuisine, Vietnamese cuisine, German cuisine. Um, you have it. It's all here. And like, as Jen was saying, you often find it in a much more authentic um, meaningful way um, in the East Bay than you would in other parts because a lot of times these are people who are first-generation immigrants and they're cooking the food that they grew up with or the food they learned from their grandmothers. And so it hasn't been sort of um, forced through the filter of American taste where everything is like ginormous portions or sure. um, very, very sweet. Um, it, it is what it should be. Sure, yeah. So we, Jen made this, I think, really helpful contextual note about the term California cuisine being a, a term that sort of applies to California cuisine in the 90s or as it was sort of emerging. How would you all, anybody can jump in here, describe the cuisine of the East Bay today to someone? Let's say someone hasn't been to the East Bay, comes to you and says, I'm, I'm coming to go to the East, I'm go, planning to go to the East Bay. I want to know what I'm getting myself into when it comes to how I'm going to eat, what restaurants I'm going to go to, what I'm going to be exposed to. I know that's a lofty question. <laughs> but like a, is that like a one word answer? 
No, no, not at all. I mean, if you can give me a one word answer, bravo. But how, how do you maybe explain to someone what's going on in the, the dining and culinary scene here in the East Bay who might not be exposed to it? I mean, I think I would ask them, what do you eat? What do you want to go? Cause it's, again, it's so diverse. Uh-huh. What do you want? Tacos? You want James food? You want beer? What do you, where, where do you want to go? You want paella? We can go to Duende. It's just, it's endless. We're just spoiled. Uh huh. Bring out yeah. your wallet book and let's go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I would say there's something for everyone. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Well, we always end with a little game. So um, we have these cards here. I'm going to put all of you to the test. Um, these cards in front of you have ingredients on them, and we use these with all most of our guests. Um, we always play a game. Not always with the cards, but they're fun. So I'm going to let you draw, each of you, is however many cards you want. The blue cards are secret ingredient cards, so those are the hardest. They can be a little... Um, they, I mean, the example I always use is gummy bears. Like, you might find gummy bears in that stack, things that you might not be used to working with. The others are sort of more traditional proteins, vegetables, and flavors. Um, so I'm going to give each of you, we're going to go down the line here, I'm going to give each of you a person who is a famous person who is a native of the East Bay, and we're going to pretend they're coming over for dinner. You don't really even need to know anything about who this person is. I just want to see what you might prepare for them with the ingredients that you've drawn from these piles of cards. Some of you look terrified. <laughs> Questions about the game or how we're going to play this? Or are we ready to jump in? I feel in? at a decided, decided disadvantage here since I'm not a trained chef. And then Jen here is going to be on Chopped next week. So. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this game is very similar to Chopped. So. Is there a prize? There is unfortunately is not it $10, a prize. Uh, I wish. I wish we had a Food Network budget. Um, do you want to go first, Jen? Or are you volunteering <laughs> with your expertise? Um, who, maybe we'll start with you, Carolyn. I don't. I don't feel like you're at quite as much of a disadvantage. I feel like you have a lot of exposure, and and I'm gonna let you choose as many cards as you want, um, and you don't have to use all of them. So draw a couple cards, and we're gonna. Top one. For, or from wherever. I, I shuffled a little bit, but they they should be shuffled. Nutmeg. Um, so we've got nutmeg. Cauliflower. Cauliflower. Shrimp. Okay. And a uh, secret ingredient. You're going to do it? Pickles. And pickles. Okay. And we're going to say that um, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow is coming to your house for dinner tonight. She grew up in Castro Valley. So, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, so she's coming for dinner. This is what you have in your pantry, nutmeg, cauliflower, shrimp, and pickles in the fridge, and you're going to make her a meal. What do you prepare? Oh, my God. Okay. Um, the cauliflower, I do the the trendy thing, cut it into steaks, uh-huh. um, sprinkle on some nutmeg, um, maybe some five spice, Okay. Um, a little bit of some kind of chili to give it some spice, sure. um, maybe some... Lemon zest, olive oil, salt and pepper, throw it in the oven, throw it on the grill until it's uh, crispy on the edges and soft within. Delicious. Um, okay, one down. Okay, <laughs> shrimp and pickle. Well, let's see. I think I would do uh, poach the shrimp, serve it with some nice gem lettuce, um, and then maybe make a dressing out of buttercream, buttermilk, Pickles, um, some herbs like uh, parsley, um, 
Tarragon. Okay. <laughs> I love it. It sounds okay. delicious. I think Rachel Maddow would love it too. Let's give it up for Carolyn. I, I like that. All right. We're gonna we're gonna keep going down the line. Are you ready, Nora? Okay. Um so draw your cards and we're you're gonna say that um Tony and Grammy winning actor David Diggs of Hamilton fame um grew up in Albany actually and he's coming over for dinner tonight. Okay. I've got mint, bell pepper. Bell pepper, yeah. Steak. All right. And kumquat. Well oh kumquat, okay. Kumquat, steak, bell pepper, and mint. What are we making for David Diggs? So we've got to grill the steak first. And I probably will make some type of uh, bell pepper um, and mint and kumquat, um, a mixture of a sauce. Okay. Yeah, roast the bell pepper first, charred, and then uh, some garlic, some peppers, um, and then... Add the mint later, just for freshness, and then uh, probably use some of that kumquat zest and juice to round it off, and then just over the steak. That's it. Delicious. Delicious. All right, let's hear it for Nora. (laughs) Jen, our our in-house TV champion, um, TV star. Okay, let's say that you're having a dinner party tonight, and um, Ryan Coogler, the movie director who made Black Panther and um, Fruitville Station, grew up in Oakland, is coming to your house for dinner tonight. What do you have in your pantry? Chives. Chives. Carrot. Carrot. Wait a second. <laughs> duck. Duck, okay. Chives, carrot, duck. Are you going secret ingredient too? Oh, fish sauce, okay. Great. Um, all right. So duck. Um, I would take off the legs and make duck confit. I have plenty of mm-hmm. time, right? So. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's coming next weekend or something. Yeah. I don't know. You you can plan. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't chopped. Um, yeah, I would take the breasts off and then make like a a quick little bit of stock uh, with the carcass, roast it, and then I think that. Um, roasted uh carrots with some kind of like little dates something kind of like sweet sure sweet in there and uh i was thinking cumin until the fish sauce came up what do you think about fish sauce love it okay cool <laughs> all right so um but i think the duck would be good comfy duck legs that have like a little spice rub on them and then rendered slow rendered super crispy duck breast with some like sweet date glazed cumin carrots finished with some a little Basil chive, crunchy salad with little greens in there, to uh-huh. a little crunch, and then the uh, fish sauce glaze on the on the duck, as well as like taking the stock, reduce it, and then maybe have the the stock also have a little sweetness in there with lots of carrots, and then finish it with a little fish sauce to give it a little tang and and butter because why not? I'll yeah. just go French <laughs> style on there. So crispy duck leg and breast with date and cumin fish sauce glaze carrots i love it what do you think it's kind of <laughs> i don't know to do the asian thing so okay. good i feel like you've done this before yeah you have experience you have experience okay angelo well let's give it up for jen actually yeah all right and finally angelo you're having a dinner party um and 
Tom Hanks is coming over. Oh. Yeah. He grew, he was born in Concord, actually, but he grew up in Oakland and graduated from Skyline High in Oakland. Oh, wow. And he is coming to your house for dinner. Let's find out what you're going to cook for him. Ladies are sitting in the bar high. Oh, we got broccoli. <laughs> Sweet oregano. Okay. Salmon. All right. I like veggies. We'll, go, we'll double down on the veggies. Asparagus. Oh, okay. no flavor as well. Oh, bay leaf. Salmon, broccoli, asparagus, oregano, bay leaf. Man. What do we make? Just jumps out the grill, I guess. I would season the fish. Grill over some oak and almond wood. Maybe um, do like Roman style broccoli. Braise down the the broccoli with um, onions, tomato paste, okay, veggie stock. Um, did I say capers? Not yet. Um, pecorino. <laughs> Just be like a little scoop and serve salad. Some grilled asparagus. Maybe finish the salmon with a little dried oregano and um, olive oil and lemon wedge, and make a little. I'm going to assume this is fresh bay leaf, so I'll make a little bay leaf gelato, a little okay. olive oil and sea salt. Yeah. Sounds delicious. That's all I got. I, I think Tom Hanks would love it. <laughs> all right. Let's hear it for Angelo. Well, Angelo, Jen, Nora, Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to all of you for being here for this live Salt and Spine podcast show for celebrating the launch of East Bay Cooks by Carolyn Jung. Thank you all so much. And that's our show for you today. Thanks so much for tuning in for this live episode. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all episodes on saltandspine.com. There, you'll find recipes for Nora Heron's laksa soup and Angelo Smith's warm Brussels sprout salad. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, with live sound by Katie and Ricardo Osuna. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Sierra Tishgard at Great Jones, to Neighborly for hosting today's live show, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Greetings Adventurers is an award-winning comedy real play D&D podcast that has been running for a decade with 427 episodes in our first campaign. I didn't have back problems or kids when we started. My favorite thing about the show is that it's a group of friends playing D&D who don't take anything too seriously. Right, like would a normal group use a sphere of annihilation as a toilet? We threw so much mayonnaise in there. We just started a new campaign, so it's a great time to jump in. Or you can listen to our first level one all the way to level 20 adventure and have hundreds of hours of entertainment. New episodes every Monday, so listen to Greetings Adventurers on ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>